out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, well, some of the time. Hello and welcome to the C86 show. You know, I know, we love a special guest on the programme. This week, it is going to be the turn of the wonder stuff because I caught up with Miles Hunt recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, electric light orchestra and much, much more. Now, a few things to talk about. The first 20 minutes, the computer crashes, so I have to do it again. And you can tell this a little bit stuttery because we're having to recap the same conversation. Anyway, we managed to navigate that. And I do realise, thankfully, the uh, second attempt was better and I managed to save it this time. Um, My vocal doesn't sound that great, so sorry about that. But that doesn't matter because I don't talk a lot. Miles does a lot of talking. And um, yes, anyway, it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. If you do, I don't know, I don't care really. But uh, if you're a fan of the band, fill your boots. This is just rock and roll, rock, you know, gold basically. So look, as I said, um, after a bit of casual chat, it was like take two. Miles, tell us about your young musical awakening in the world. And this was Miles' response. Take it away, Miles. Well, it was always going to be the case that um, my brother and I were going to follow our uncle, really, Uncle Bill, my dad's brother, into a, a life in music. Um, Bill had been in a very late lineup of The Move, uh, where he met Roy Wood, and then Roy Wood formed the Electric Light Orchestra, uh, which Bill went to with him. That they, Bill's on two albums of uh, the Electric Light Orchestra, and then Bill and Roy leave the Electric Light Orchestra and they form Wizard. So my first memory, I remember Blackberry Way being played at my grandparents quite a lot, even though Bill wasn't on it. But Bill had been in a live lineup of the band. Um, But yeah, so Ballpark Incident by Wizard, first single comes out 72, I believe. And... um, that really is the doors opening into the world of, uh, you know, commercial music. For, for Maybe my brother was slightly ahead of me. I don't know. Yeah, he's three and a half years older. But that was the beginning for me. And, uh, you know, Uncle Bill had wizard T-shirts and badges to give us and uh, was very much in the, the world of British rock and pop at the time. Um, so he, he, he would get, like, free copies of... T-Rex albums and pass them on to me and my brother. Yes. So, yeah, so uh, that that would be the beginning. And so Wizard and then knowing that Slade probably lived within a 10-mile radius of where we did, and Slade were like the, the biggest British band at the time, as far as we were concerned. Um, heavy metal never touched me and my brother. We, we weren't really... I, I have a problem, really, with... The first Black Sabbath album. Well, just I, people that don't... Aussie's all right. This this doesn't really apply to Aussie. I just don't like the music, or I don't dislike it. I'm just not interested in it. It didn't interest or excite me when I I heard it. You know, my uncle Steve, my mom's brother, he was into Sabbath and Deep Purple and all that in the early seventies, and um, he would play it to us, and it just didn't work. There was absolutely no connection to me. Right. Um, Slade, we connected with. T-Rex, uh, latterly Bowie we would have gotten into uh, before Punk Comes Along. 
Because interesting, what? I was going to say, because the interesting thing with um, Electric Light Orchestra is mm -hmm. that it did have that very big bombastic production sound, didn't it? Which was probably everything that punk rock would have hated at the time, because it was, it was, I remember on top of the pop seeing very sort of hairy men, basically, who looked... Oh, they were hairy. They were very hairy, weren't they? They were hairy, yeah. Is, you know. No doubt about that. Um, and they looked like men. They didn't look like skinny kids from the estate, did they? They looked quite yeah. chunky. And and you could imagine what early punks must have thought about ELO, as well as, uh, yes, Genesis and, and Wishbone Ash, really. It would have been everything. Plus, you there was a certain amount of orchestral kind of classical quality in the in the music as well it wasn't slapstick was it no i mean it um the electric light orchestra rather than elo which is after the first two albums when roy and bill have, have left to go and do wizard it becomes elo and then it becomes very poppy still very hairy uh, but it becomes very poppy. They have the big hits then. Um, yeah, Roy was a cellist. Uh, my uncle's uh, keyboards and French horn. And they both come through what is now called the Birmingham Conservatoire of Music, but it was Birmingham Music School. Uh, and so they were, you know, the, the, that original lineup of uh, Electric Light Orchestra, that's a bunch of trained musicians. You know, they're, they're, they're not guys in a pub thinking Chuck Berry's good and let's form a little skiffle band around that. They were all trained classical musicians. Yeah. Yes, because because I was obsessed with Bowie and luckily that was my first single, but also I loved Lenny and they were both the same age. And whenever they got asked about what their first musical influence in that moment, they both would say Little Richard. So that, that comes from a very rock and roll background, whereas obviously bands like the you know ELO, Yes, Genesis, probably wouldn't have thought Little Richard straight away. They would have probably been classically trained, wouldn't they? Yeah, I'm sure they... I, I know Roy Wood is... Um, he's very much hung on to um, his love of, you know, 1950s original rock and roll. So Roy did love all of that stuff. I think he was admirably just trying to move it forward, um, which is why I've always loved him. Um you know, there's there's two things that really stick in my craw with with uh, with contemporary musicians. People that only look backwards. They, they don't need to be named, but essentially all of Britpop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just looked backwards. It it didn't it didn't look forward. So you know, I've already heard the Kinks. I've already heard the Beatles. I don't need it repackaged for me now. And and then the other thing I was going to say about you know hard rock. Um, Things like Led Zeppelin that I didn't connect to when I was younger because, uh, and for much the same reason I've never really connected with the Rolling Stones, but I have the Who, is I don't like singers that falsify American accents if you're not from America. I think it's laughable. Right, yes. So did you sort of pick up on the David Bowie, Anthony Newley kind of vocal well, not, not when I first heard Bowie, because I wouldn't have had a clue who Anthony Newley was. But once it was pointed out to me, yeah, you, you can hear that he was obviously influenced in, in the vocal style. Yeah. Yes. But trucking on from the from the punk period that obviously you because I, as I was saying, when I was growing up, you know, I was about 13 when punk happened. And even though I'd heard about the Sex Pistols, I still hadn't actually heard a song by them because it was kind of very difficult to get hold of music at that stage. And as I, my older brother, who I idolise, didn't have a seven-inch single in, in his kind of record collection. It was all kind of prog rock. Um, yes, it, it took a... You know, I kind of missed punk. 
and it was kind of the indie scene that sort of happened. So what was that kind of musical journey for you during that period? Because obviously you were able to sort of access music a bit easier. Well, I mean, Russ and I were very much encouraged by my dad um, to get into punk rock. Um, the all-inclusive nature of the politics um, in, in punk lyrics from Strummer, uh, Weller, uh, Tom Robinson, John Lydon, was very much my dad's politics, you know, left-leaning, all-inclusive, um, and that there were very strong women coming up as well. My dad liked X-Ray Specs and like Susie. Um, so, yeah, we were very encouraged. Um, and, and it was that was when the doors are thrown up to go, well, actually, if, if, if we bother to learn these instruments that our parents have bought for, for us, uh, then we can form a band. And did that feel a bit strange having sort of parents and, and sort of uncles who are into the music rather than, you know, normally everybody has that experience of watching Top of the Pops with parents saying, God, is that a boy or girl? And, oh, I can't hear what they're singing and sort of being very disapproving, which obviously gives you that kind of, oh, I must... Oh, yeah, my dad did all of that, um, and, but he would be, you know, ripping it out of the Brotherhood of Man and, and, and the sort of, you know, the out-and-out out pop stuff. He despised all of that. Um, but when when the Pistols, there was, a, a, I think, a video shown for Pretty Vacant, he, he absolutely loved it. And I, I, to this day, I remember him going, you know, the, the, the way that that kid sings is, is kind of remarkable, you know, like his timing, his intonation. Uh, and, and my dad thought that We're So Pretty, Oh So Pretty was just brilliantly melodic. Whereas, you know, the, the, the pop artists of the day, he would, oh, my God, what's this rubbish now? You know, so, um, and it, of course it wasn't strange for us. We've only got one set of parents and that's that's how they were. Um, it was probably strange for a, a few of our friends um, whose parents were the sort of archetypal, uh, you know, don't want don't want people to get into music, want, want you to study for your exams, don't want you to wear punk rock influenced T-shirts and other clothing. Uh, whereas our parents, if not wholeheartedly encouraged us, then they certainly didn't have a problem with it. Yes. And then as we trucked into the sort of 80s, that glorious period, we'd had sort of Factory in 79, then that post-punk period with, you know, all those scratchy bands like Peel and Gang of Magazine. And then sort of for me, 83 to 87 was the great years of the indie pop moment, which kind of were a bit of the golden years, which are also the years of the Smiths, because you'd got those kind of jingly jangly sort of sound. Plus, You'd got the gatekeepers at that point. You'd got sort of, that, by, by then, you know, John Pill had become really relevant and had his finger on the pulse. Plus, you had the music papers, which were kind of huge. And then you had all these kind of venues all over the sort of country, all these art centres that had alternative indie nights. So during that early period, did, is that when you started sort of forming bands? Uh, Russ and I had started to play together with mates by the time I was 12 or 13 when I was a drummer. Um, so that's, you know, that's late, the late seventies, um, making little recordings. We learned how to multi-track by using, you know, two different tape decks. Um, and then our uncle Bill, he'd actually got a reel to reel eight track, multi-track, uh, recorder. So by 80 or 81, we were going over to his house and, and recording stuff over there in his music room. Um, I did it. I, that period that... Go on. 
I was going to say, and did it start, did you sort of work out what the mechanics were to sort of put together a song and how it sort of, how you sort yeah. of brought it together with that kind of influence? Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we, we were learning from what we were listening to. You know, we weren't trained musicians. We were just figuring it out for ourselves from, from our favourite musicians. And for my brother, that would have been Paul Weller. For me, it would have been, as a drummer, Pete DeFratis from Echo and the Bunny Men. Uh, even Stephen Morris from Joy Division. Two guys that just seemed to rewrite the book of how a drummer plays in a traditional setup of a rock band you know like four piece rock band those two drummers were extraordinary i'd never heard anything quite like it they'd sort of thrown away the old rule, rule book um and also it was music that didn't seem well i looked about the 80s um alternative new wave whatever you want to call it scene was um people weren't influenced by the Beatles and the Kinks, or not obviously. And uh, and they certainly weren't, they didn't seem to be encumbered by the blues, which is something else that I find that I don't connect with um, simply for its predictability. I, right. don't need every I don't need every line sung twice um, and know what the next chord change is. I, I've always reeled against that. So when you have bands like Magazine, Echo and the Bunny Men, Teardrop Explodes, uh, Joy Division, New Order and all of that, it was it just sounded very, very unusual. Um, yes. And, we, and, and also and, during that time, because obviously as we truck into the 80s, there'd been, you know, like the, the great explosion of um, indie pop bands like Stump, Bob's Shed, Big Flame, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, like you'd had sort of the fall. And some of the bands who I've interviewed, they kind of made that sound because they were music, musically quite limited. So that's all they could do. Yeah. They couldn't do a cover. So did that, did those kind of bands have an influence? On no, not, not particularly, no. Um, I didn't understand why they sounded so rubbish. I, I, I later, not, you know, not all of them were bad players. There were some good players. Uh, it just seemed that they would go to stu you know, budget studios where the engineers there had no idea how to record music. Whereas by the time I'm, you know, 13, 14, I'm getting an education of how to record music from my Uncle Bill, who'd, who'd been doing it since the late 60s. So I didn't understand why their records sounded so piss poor. Um, and I, I, I think a, a few of those bands that you just mentioned were heavily influenced by the fall. And latterly, I came to appreciate the fall. But um, during that late seventies, early eighties, that they wouldn't be a band that I would take a great deal of pleasure in, to be honest. Um, yes. But thank goodness they existed because their influence is enormous, and you get a lot of amazing bands. Um, uh, particularly the ways you know some people approach the guitars. By the time you get to the mid to late 80s, you've got that petrol emotion. And although I know the O'Neills had come out of the undertones, um, that some of that single string riffing to me reminded me of some of the more palatable stuff that I like by the fall. Um, but yeah, the stump, you know, met, met them as guys, great people. I didn't really enjoy how jarring their music was and we'd had that kind of sound come through Birmingham in the early and mid 80s with the Nightingales and and, and with the, the nose flutes and, and bands like that and it, it just seemed like they were purposefully 
sat, trying to sound amateurish, yes. <laughs> wishing to be too insulting. But by which time, by 85, I'd sort of, I'd cracked my nut on the Smiths. I hadn't enjoyed the Smiths until I heard The Queen is Dead. And then I'm like, okay, these people can really write songs. This is this is really, really good songwriting. And then I backtracked to my actually they've always been able to write good songs, haven't they? So I I was probably just off put by Morris's vocal style, which again I came to love in the end. Yeah. Um but and also around that that same time as uh, finding out how to enjoy the Smiths. I'd heard um the first two or three Waterboys albums, which was a game changer for me. Um, the first album isn't a wonderful, lush production, but it's trying to be. You know, it's some Porter Studio home recordings that Mike Scott was doing on that first Waterboys album. But you could tell, he, you know, the, the sound quality, while the sound quality wasn't great because he was working with what he'd got, his intentions were massive and remarkable. And by the second and third album, Pagan Place and This Is The Sea, he was achieving what was in his head, he was getting it to tape. And um, and I think by the time we were at This Is The Sea, I was completely obsessive over the Waterboys. And it was so well put together, well produced. I mean, latterly, we worked with the producer of This Is The Sea, Mick Glossop, on our third album, uh, Never Loved Elvis. But that, that that was a big one for me. So, so bands like... Um, um, Orange juice and a lot of that stuff. I just I just couldn't connect with it because it just sounded. We used to use the word shambolic. I, th I think some bands actually applied it to themselves in the mid eighties. Yeah, you know, it's the shambolic scene, and it didn't work for me. Yeah, well, I suppose you had. Uh, yeah, there was also people like the shop assistants as well. But then, yeah. but having interviewed a lot of those bands, they often mention you know Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa yeah. and Velvet Goldmine Underground. And then yeah. also the Nuggets albums as well. So they, they were coming from that slightly garagey sound as well as the yeah. So I don't think they had that slight other quality that you were probably sort of influenced by, which was probably a bit more sort of lush with you know like Yeah, grander. Just a grander and, and try and play try and tune all of the instruments before you hit the red button. <laughs> but then were, the, the other thing that happened during the 80s was that we sort of had a huge amount of unemployment in the early period. So there was a lot of people who at that stage, you know, leaving school was thinking, well, we'll just go on the dole. You know, there was job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance and all those kind of schemes that you could just sign on for a year and say you're a musician so you could be in a band. So that kind mm -hmm. of created an awful lot of people going off and making music just for that one year. And, and obviously some of them sort of went on to sort of have five-year, even ten-year careers, and, and in Jarvis Cocker's case, even longer. So it did create quite a lot of music at that stage. And you also had these kind of the gatekeepers. You, you know, you had the John Peel show, you had the music press who had a huge circulation and, and venues all over the country. So there was a, a lot of bands developing at that time. And also you had the sort of tribal thing that you had the mainstream charts that had that Trevor Horn production and bands like that. And then you had the kind of indie scene and Red Wedge. So being, you know, you were in that formative period. So how were you sort of navigating those, those kind of particular years? Um, I guess we just wanted attention. Any, any kind of attention would have done, thank you very much. So we were enormously helped by Pop Will Eat Itself, who'd made all the connections, um, of, of how to gig outside of the Midlands to, to start touring nationally. 
They had the nows to get the money together to start their own record label. So we just, you know, they were always a couple of steps ahead of us and they were always very helpful towards us and um, gave us the phone numbers. This is A, get a gig in Halifax. This is A, get a gig in Edinburgh. You talk to this guy. Um, and then there was a, a nightclub in Birmingham on a Tuesday night. It was kind of like an indie night called Burberry's, the Click Club. And, and you started to see some of the, uh, the, the sort of the non the contributing journalists to enemy melody maker, people like Terry Staunton and, uh, Dave Travis and Jeffrey S. Kent, uh, would be around. So Clint Mansell would usually say to me, you know, go and give your demo to that guy. He might be able to help you out. He, you know, he can perhaps do a review of a gig for Sands or enemy. And, um, so we were helped enormously. It was just how we want attention. It wasn't like we were trying to get in on anyone's scene. Uh, it, it might have looked like it from the outside to begin with that Pop Will Eat Itself, the Wonder Stuff and the Neds were, you know, all connected at the hip, but that was only because of, for, because of the geography of the fact that we all lived in a similar area. We were all friends. We all drank in several of the same pubs and we all tried to help each other. Um, I think all three bands were actually um plowing three very different troughs you know musically i just wanted to keep trying to remake this is the sea um the, the, you know pop will eat itself went from being a buzzcocks-esque um kind of guitar pop band into then absorbing some hip-hop and rap influences and then latterly became what i would call uh industrial uh, pre-industrial whatever it is um, and the, and the Neds just had that sound of their own, you know. Uh, yes. But but, but but why why you know the, the two bass players gave it that sound. John's got a very identifiable voice. Uh, their arrangements I always thought were quite strange, um, and enjoyed the strangeness of them. They weren't just working verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus, which the rest of us were. Um, and so it might have looked like the wonderful part of the scene, but it it. It wasn't intentional. It was just a bunch of friends trying to help each other out. Yes, because it's quite interesting because in 87, the kind of the party kind of slightly changes. And one of those things, because a lot of bands finished, including the Smiths, but there was also, yeah, ecstasy came along and suddenly there was a kind of a, a sort of a new scene that had developed, which was kind of everyone wanted to suddenly, not everyone, but a lot of people were taking ecstasy and there was like the whole rise of the Stone Roses you know, the Soup Dragons managed to change their sound. You had, you know, Happy Mondays, Primal Scream. And suddenly, you know, the guy called Gerald, a guy called Gerald, started to appear. And, and suddenly a lot of bands that I didn't also interview sort of gave up around that time because they sort of thought, actually, we're on our second or third album. We're all a bit tired. We're fed up. We haven't made any money. And now the music papers and everybody wants us to sound a bit like that. And frankly, we're not. So we're going to give it a miss. Mm -hmm. So when you came along in 86, did you sort mm -hmm. of think, oh, shit, something's happened here? Something, the, the ground has moved a bit? No, I was clueless. I I, I didn't start looking at the music papers till uh, till I was in them. And um, and then pretty much when I stopped being in them, I stopped looking at them again. I I was clueless. I had no interest in anybody's scene. I think that list of bands that you just I think I always thought Happy Mondays were really interesting. Um, 
from a lyricist point of view, I thought Sean Ryder was a brilliant lyricist. And I just thought they were interesting. There was something about Public Image Limited, about some of their music. Um, well, I think what happened, yeah, you, you had the DJ scene and then a few of the DJs <clears throat> hooked up with, a, you know, a number of the bands and um, started to become producers and started getting rid of the drummers and started putting, you know, program beats behind um, these bands. And I I could see that was a scene. I was aware of it. You know, if I was going out, if I was be going to London by 88, and if we were going to clubs and bars there, I was starting to think, all this stuff sounds the same. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I'm being unfair there, really. Like, yeah, there's something going on with all these bands. And then, of course, it's names like, um, you know, Andy Weatherall's name keeps getting mentioned, connected to all sorts of different bands. Um, again, I didn't connect with it. I've never done a Class A drug in my life. Um, never been interested. I like uh, my ale and I like my cigarettes. I used to smoke a little bit of pot, but um, it, it didn't make me feel any better than I felt before I smoked it. So... Um, I wasn't really, and I was kind of sceptical about, like, this music's great when you're on drugs. <laughs> that essentially tells me that it's rubbish if you're not, uh, which uh, which was my suspicion anyway. Not rubbish, just I wasn't connecting with it. It wasn't for me. So, no, I wasn't remotely interested in any of that. I, I, I never really kept an eye on what other people were doing. We were a very odd little band in the fact that, you know, our bass player, Rob Jones, original bass player was you know speed metal and that was his kind that's where he was coming from we were four malk and i were i guess were the closest in in the the musical influences but i you know the bands of, of the time that were exciting us were people like the shaman before the shaman went dance you know when the shaman were like a five or six piece guitar band yeah. And they did that album drop. We both thought that was remarkable. The, the first and second, that Petrol Emotional albums, we, we thought were remarkable. Who weren't really, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't made big features of the, the indie nightclubs that, that people were going to. They were just great live bands who, who made great records and wasn't really... We just, yeah, we weren't trying to get in on anyone's scene and uh, and the scene that was going on that you described, you know, ecstasy, dance, crossover stuff, didn't interest me in the slightest. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned speed metal because you did from the Midlands have sort of, it was a lot of napalm death and calm mm -hmm. and extreme noise terror. So it's interesting your bass player that's very sort of influenced by that as well. Yeah, that was really his thing. Yes. But also during that time, you mentioned the Waterboys, but there'd been those other bands like the Men They Couldn't Hang and obviously the Pogues, who, you know, everyone went to see, didn't they, live at least once. You know, so, so that kind of folk influence started to come in and the use of sort of different in, in, instruments, you know, wasn't looked upon. You know, like during the Britpop period, it was all guitars, and then people started bringing in the sort of My Life Story orchestra just to... <laughs> to, to the kitchen start. sink. <laughs> yeah. Poor old... Yeah, well, you know, we talked about the, the, the you know, pop will eat itself were evolving. They they brought in a hip hop influence in in their rhythms, and were doing a bit of MC in, you know, Graham Crab moved from behind the drum kit up front to be vocalist with Clint Mansell, and that wasn't the way that I was going to go. We had been heavily influenced by pop will eat itself up to that point, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching pop will eat itself develop. 
Um, but when they got to the hip hop thing, I'm like, nope, this, this again, I'm not connecting with that. Um, just said about the, the bands that went with the producers, the, the, the DJ producers and started to go in a dance. So I wasn't interested in that, wasn't interested in connecting with people via class A drugs. Um, but so when we came to do our second album, Hop, the one thing that I was very, um, very aware of, I, I didn't want to remake the Eight Legged Groove Machine. By the time the Eight Legged Groove Machine came out, I think we were all sick of it. <clears throat> we were sick of the songs. We were sick of the style that we were playing. We wanted to get rid of the frivolous side um, of the wonder stuff of that nature at uh, that time. Um, and we wanted to broaden our arrangements, slow things down a bit, not to ballad speeds, but to REM speeds, I guess, is what we were, I suppose they were the biggest influence on us when we were making our second album. And so Malk was, Malk is a fabulous guitarist and he's a, he solos really, really well. He just never wanted to. It's interesting with his new band, um, Holy Apes, that he's got with Ange Doolittle from Eat. Um, Malk's riffing away there all over the place. And I've, I've always known he can do it, you know, um, but he doesn't like to, he didn't like to do it then. I think he thought there was something slightly shameful about um, showing off your abilities. He really loved uh, John O'Neill's guitar from uh, style from That Petrol Emotion. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, which is completely obvious when you hear our second single, Unbearable. I mean, it's almost a direct rip of big decision. <laughs> I think it probably is the big decision rip backwards, but, you know, it's just taking a rhythm idea and trying to do some of yourselves with it. So by the second album, I knew that I didn't want to make another two and a, an album full of two and a half minute songs that were 160 beats per minute, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, end, no soloing, uh, and only guitars. So if we were going to try and slow it down and broaden it, and I think one of the first songs that we wrote for Hop was a song called Cartoon Boyfriend, which tempo-wise is, is really relaxed for the Wonder Stuff at that point. But again, that would be an R influence and there were two in the original version of it there were two solo sections it was something my old man had said to me my dad said to me he said you know you're not, not a trained singer you put a lot into what you do when you're on stage you want to while you're thinking about another album and new songs you want to start writing some rests vocal rests in the songs else you are gonna trash you know because he could see what was happening you know the first year we did 50 gigs the next year it was 100 gigs the next year it was 150 gigs you know by then we were regularly touring the usa we go to australia we go to japan we're going around europe we go to canada and my dad was honestly kid you got to start putting some rests in your music where you at least get like 30 seconds break every now and again so you're not ripping the hell out of your throat. And so we put these solo sections into Cartoon Boyfriend. I'd also pitch my voice much lower than, the, than anything that had been on Eight Legged Groove Machine. But Mal didn't want to do solos. And uh, I, by that time, I'm absolutely in love with the Waterboys uh, Fisherman's Blues album, which then just... Like, I don't know how I hadn't thought of it before. My two favourite Bob Dylan albums are Desire and Blood on the Tracks, and there's a lot of violins uh, on those albums. And so I said to Mal, well, you know, you like the Waterboys as well. Should we see if we can find a violinist that might fit in for a couple of these 
tracks. And um, Pat Collier had, um, had met Martin Bell. I think Martin had worked on a Men They Couldn't Hang record. I think that's how Pat Collier, the producer of Hop, knew Martin. He said, well, let me get that guy in. He's very good. He's a very quick worker, uh, which was important to us in those days. <laughs> And, uh, and Mike Bell came in and just laid out a solo on the, the original version of Cartoon Boyfriend. And then I'd like, look, while you're here, I've got this little waltz track called Unfaithful. I'm like, can you do anything with this? He set that on fire. Then we, we got um, a sort of the only really frivolous track on Hop. We got Golden Green, which had been another song. But for some reason, Bob decided that it should be sort of a, a country and western pastiche so we've got this doom 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 boom 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 kind of the version that you might know and martin bell was in the studio look can you throw some banjos on this it's like yeah can you throw some mandolins on it can you do some more violins and i think within like two or three days of having martin coming in that studio the entire sound of the band had changed in my mind and i loved it uh, i'm like we are now we're free of these two and a half minute guitar fueled fast tracks. Um, so after we'd uh, got about halfway into the album, we, we quickly realised that you know what we can't leave all of that behind. So then we came up with things like uh, "Can't Shape Up" and "Radio Askis," just to you know have a nod at, uh, at the sound of Eight Legged Groove Machine. But I, I think those two tracks are, are there's, there's a lot of growing up yeah. going on. Were you, were you slightly, in your sort of subconscious, were you sort of aware of a song in the 70s, which this was thinking about when you were talking about it? It was kind of a country song about the devil and the violin the having this kind devil of... Goes down to Georgia. Yes. Daniels, yeah. It, well, yeah, I knew it, but I, it, 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 we knew it as, um, I suppose, uh, a novelty hit, really. It was. But so, then, so, but at the same time, but, when you come back to it, you suddenly think, oh, yeah, actually, that... Because there is something, I remember, you know, obviously you probably hate when people mention other bands who started doing it, like the Levelers sort of brought in that kind of folk punk sound as well, didn't they? Mm -hmm. and, and, and suddenly it was kind of cool because it wasn't, it wasn't really a cool thing to have during this sort of indie 80s, you know, the 80s period, was it really? Well, the go-betweens had had a violinist and so I, I didn't think there was anything uncool about having a violinist. Ultravox had a violinist and I'm talking about Ultravox with John Fox before before Major comes along and they start having a big hit, uh, which also had an electric violin and I love that too. But um, you know things like the Wild, the Beautiful, and the Damned by Ultravox, the Dylan stuff the, to me was uber cool. You know, uh, I wasn't worried that bringing a violin in was going to make us on call. I, I didn't think we were cool anyway. I had no interest in being cool. Yeah. I just wanted lots of attention. <laughs> well, actually, I remember I went to see Laurie Anderson and she an album called Strange Angels I think and that was I saw it live and it was amazing so that, that yeah you're right so as, as, as we trucked into the 90s and, and we'd sort of you'd obviously you'd already got a really passionate following hadn't you that kind of the festy crowd had suddenly really taken to you with great enthusiasm hadn't you your, your following was quite phenomenal yeah well you mentioned earlier it was 87 you said that the Smiths broke up yes I, okay, so I, I, it seemed to me that all of these young people that had seen us at the festival, at Reading Festival, and we did it first time in 88, it seemed to me like all of a sudden, <clears throat> after the Smiths breaking up, 
that it wasn't like the Smiths audience needed a bunch of new bands. It was like there were like a new audience was born. It was almost like the Smiths audience who would be people in their in their twenties heading to thirty, and then all of a sudden there were this new pack of seventeen to twenty two year olds that we definitely did pick up at the festivals, and we picked them up from supporting bands like. Um, Big Country, um, Zodiac Mind Warp, we did tours with those. Um, Pop Will Eat Itself again are ahead of us, so we're picking up their crowd as well. Um, but it just seemed like there was a brand new crowd. <clears throat> I think it, some of it might have something to do with, for instance, Reading. Look, and also, the festivals were nowhere near as important in a band's career as they are viewed now, now then. Like, I think the first time we did Reading Festival, it was still called Reading Rock and Blues. And it was very much a rock festival that you would expect to see status quo, you know, Judas Priester. Body <clears throat> um, Tyler. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, 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 and, and then that 88 um, Reading, maybe 87 as well, it just seemed like they stripped away what had been there, the bands that had really given them a, a good audience. And, the, and then all these kids came out of nowhere, much much the same way it happened again with Britpop. That wasn't, you know, like 94, 95, The Wonder Stuff, Pop Will Eat Itself, Neds, Eat, all split up. Some other bands have just, you know, not made their greatest record and just sort of started to fade away. And then all of a sudden for Oasis and Blur, it seemed like there was a whole new generation born again. It wasn't, didn't seem to me like, it was the people that had been into us lot. It was a new audience. Yeah, you know, I guess I guess that just happens every every eight to ten years. Well, I guess you would have probably seen it or thought about it, and someone would have mentioned it when you went to a festival. Someone went, "God, everyone looks so young." It's like actually, the eighteen-year-olds still look eighteen, but we're just years older, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the difference, isn't it? They're they're yeah. going to their first festival. They've just done their grade yeah. levels and. We're sort of old exactly. people who are reminiscent about when we saw the orb or, you know, Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. And they're thinking, yeah. you know, whatever, granddad, you know, we're, we're here to see the latest <laughs> band, you know. And, and, and so that, or you're right. I think everybody has that period where you're listening to music 24-7 and then one day you need to have a few other priorities and you kind of miss that next wave of music that comes along. Yeah. And you don't understand it and then you sound like your dad. You know, yeah. I, I think that kind of comes along because because also, you know, most bands do have that five year narrative and you not quite fit it because 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 like in the 80s, especially there was like, you know, the unemployed years, you know, make a single John Peel player, get the John Peel session. First album, things are going well. Second, you know, like do the tours of all the art centres and a bit of the university circuit, possibly. And then the second album, definitely the university circuit. But then by then the band has started to get a little bit creaky and what I've also noticed, if anybody ever goes to America, is they come back broken and they sort of split up. So, <laughs> so, so you're, um, so you, you, you don't quite have you. You know, John Peel does give you some kind of play, but you didn't get a session, did you? No, I didn't want one either. Um, I didn't. I didn't think for a minute we were a John Peel band. I think he played Unbearable once, and he played its B side once. Uh, and so we only ever had two peel plays and i um again going back to um that sound i have never heard i don't know i don't know what people enjoy about bbc radio sessions they're awful 
I've never heard a good radio session. They're terrible. I can't stand them. They're done in a day by a bunch of Jobsworths, production and engineering staff that don't care. The band are an inconvenience to their day. The bands uh, in our day, you weren't allowed to even sit in on the mix, so they'd get all the mix wrong. They're awful. I think the only time I can re remember appreciating a John Peel session existing with Susie and the Banshees because they'd they'd got all the press and we'd heard of them, but they'd got no record out. And he had them, um, I believe, for two radio sessions before they'd even got a record out. So that was kind of useful to us that we could hear a sound to go with the pictures of them that had been in, in NME and the like. Yeah. Other than that, they are flat, horrible-sounding things. <laughs> um, we did one for... I think we did one BBC session. It was it was done in the wet, exactly exact the same room and with the same producers that, and engineers that did the Peel sessions um, for maybe Mark Goodyear's show, and the whole experience was horrible. And we said, right, we'll never do that again. And we yes. never did. They asked us every single time, you know, when Janice Long was doing the, the evening session and stuff. And uh, we always politely declined, just saying, no, they sound terrible. You didn't get to meet the, the famous Dale Griffin. From I did. You did? Yeah he, yeah, he recorded our one and only BBC session and a more miserable bloke I've never met in my life. <laughs> and, and apparently completely talentless as well when it came to production. I mean, it was absolutely awful. <laughs> Excellent. Very few people have had a good experience with Dale, did they really? That's, that's kind of quite consistent across the board, you could almost say. Right. So when... I, wouldn't make, I mean, he can be grumpy, that's fine. I've worked with plenty of, well, not plenty, but a couple of grumpy producers. But, but if they've got a good set of ears on them and they know what they're doing then, I, you know, I'm not there to be your friend. I'm there to do a job of work. Um, but when they're as grumpy as he was and as useless as he was, then, you know, then that's not acceptable. Yes. So when you went in to make your fourth album, Construction of the Modern Idiot, and that was with Pat Collier, did, mm. did, were you feeling kind of quite exhausted by then? You know? <sighs> Uh, no, not really. Um, we the, the recording of Neville of Delvish and Mick Glossop, even though it's I th I thought at the time when we finished it, it's a wonderful sounding album. I still really really like it now. Um, it was a grueling experience. Um, Mick Glossop was um, a great guy, love him, uh, in incredibly clever. Um, but it was re recording forensically. Um, so for instance, I remember the drum track just to record the drums for the size of a cow took five days. Now you're talking about an incredibly gifted drummer. Um, but what Mick wants to try is, or what did, uh, he wanted to try out every snare drum that was available in Europe, every cymbal that was... <laughs> Uh, available in Europe that we could rent in, uh, how you could tune the drums differently. Uh, but then the performance that he eventually edits together of Martin's was fantastic. We, you, you know, um, Martin was a very, very inventive drummer, really unusual. And um, But Mick wouldn't, for instance, if you have a certain drum fill that takes you from verse one into the bridge, then... In mixed mind, you're not allowed to do that exact same drum fill 
going from verse two into the second bridge. You've got to come up with another one. So there was a lot of that going on. And Martin was a very, very patient soul. And uh, but but it, but to me, this is just five days on the drums. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, and and to me, because my mood was going down and I was getting frustrated, I was getting really worried that this was going to be a pretty awful sounding record because it would sound like my mood. And uh, Mick Glossop was so incredibly clever and diligent and forensic over everything that he recorded. It came out sounding like we were having an amazing time, <laughs> but I really wasn't. So when we get to construction, I didn't want to go through that process again. I could not face going into a studio for four months to listen to the same 12 songs. I just, I, there's just nothing in me. I couldn't do it. So we wanted to go back to Pat Collier. Um, which was much more thrashing through a track, then sitting down and spending a day on arranging the drums and the bass parts, which felt far more natural to us. We had become, I think we surprised Pat Collie, we'd picked up some of this forensic way of recording from Mick Glossop, and we, the band brought that some into that final Pat Collier session that we did. Um, we'd also built our own studio. And the other thing that had happened... Um, I, I wrote every song on Never Loved Elvis. I wrote the original idea of every song other than Welcome to the Cheap Seats, which uh, the fiddle player Martin Bell had brought to me as an instrumental. Um, and then the band developed the instrumental and it turned into Welcome to the Cheap Seats. But every other song, I'd come up with the embryonic idea for every song. And I hadn't found it difficult, but the idea of going through three, four, five, six months of everyone off down the beach with their girlfriends or flying out of Europe for a holiday while I'm sitting in my flat with an acoustic guitar, I just, I ain't doing it, guys. That is not going to happen. <laughs> and, and, of course, we used to split all of the royalties completely equally, which was imbecilic on my point, my part for doing that. Um, and so I said, you're all going to have to come in with ideas. And so they did. But, you know, Martin Jilks was a drummer and he did show me things on the acoustic guitar and he's not a guitarist. He could, you know, rudimentary knowledge of playing the guitar. But, of course, those ideas weren't great. The second bass player that was in the band by that time wasn't a great bass player, wasn't a remotely dynamic or interesting person. So none of his ideas were I, I couldn't connect with. Then you got Mark Treese, who brought in some wonderful stuff. Um, but Martin Bell, who's an incredible um, multi-instrumentalist, he was bringing in more stuff. And also just their personalities, Martin and Maltrice. Um, Martin would ha have an idea of where, the, even if he just showed it me on a guitar, in his mind he'd worked out a drum pattern, a bass pattern, a, a whole keyboard section. And so to me that was like, okay, okay. Let's work on that because it, the ideas were more developed that Martin Bell was bringing in and and so far more easy for me to try and find a vocal line for, whereas Malk would come in with a great riff and just his personality, his very gentle personality, would go, I don't know if you like it and, uh, I, you know, it doesn't matter to me if we don't take it anywhere. Um, so that's what became difficult. And then, of course, so we worked on so many of the Martin Bell tracks, I think, Malk's never talked to me about it, but I, I I have thought about it over the years. I think Malk thought he was being pushed slightly to the side in the creative department. 
And then uh, I don't have many good things to say about Martin Bell, but um, I think he spotted that at the time and then encouraged everyone to work on some Malk tracks. But then, of course, where Malk would ordinarily be developing the guitar parts that he'd brought in, Martin Bell was filling up all the gaps. So where <laughs> Malk might have been like, okay, I want to develop this guitar part, maybe take it to another chord, uh, by which time there was a fiddle line on it or a piano line on it or an accordion line on it, and we'd all agreed that that was good. So again, even when we were working on Malk Trees tracks, Malk was getting a little bit usurped by somebody else's talent. And so it was quite frustrating. We built our own studio. We recorded 24 songs as demos. And then we took them into Pat Collier. I think we wrote three more in the studio. And um, and our eye was not on the British market either, you know. Um, I, don't, I, th I think Elastica was certainly around. And, and and shed seven was certainly around by that part that point so it's the beginning of Britpop. i don't think oasis have arrived and blur were obviously around by then it's the beginning of Britpop, and we had zero interest in sounding like any of those bands so what we were listening to was uh still rem um faith no more and jane's addiction and who are much harder rocking bands than us, but that's where we wanted to go. Not, not, not with the intention of breaking America. We did have an American manager by then, and he very much wanted us to rock out a bit more and, and sort of take it towards an American market. He was like, look, you know, the English market is what it is. You can't, as, as a five-piece hairy band like you, you can't sell millions of records in England. So come to America, you probably can. And um, although that wasn't what we were doing, it was American bands that we were listening to. Yes. Uh, and, how did you, um, and how did you find touring America? But you also toured, you had massive tours around the world. So how was your touring experience? Looking at it now, looking back to it now, it was great. Um, I think all I did at the time was moan. Um, but we were treated incredibly well, you know, we, we weren't in the back of a van. We were on very, very, very comfortable tour buses that had uh, all the beds on, but we were also staying in really expensive hotels and uh, having a great time. You know, we, we, we could be staying at a four-star hotel in Seattle with a 15-bunk tour bus parked outside and, and playing to 250 people in some grotty little club. You know, it was... It was ridiculous. Um, so looking back at it now, um, it's slightly rose-tinted for me because I've met what have now turned into be lifelong friends from those days of touring America. Some of my closest friends I met out there, and we're all still in touch. Um, it could be quite gruelling, you know. It's, it's not like three weeks nipping around the UK. These are seven, eight, nine-week tours. And... Um, because there, there, there were a few other bands. There was a band from Norwich called Goba Patrol, who I think had a good time touring America. And also you right. had um, Gay Bikers on Acid as well. So there was a kind of, yeah. there was a kind of a, another scene sort of bubbling along. But you were right, when the Britpop world suddenly appeared, you had Sleeper, Elastica, you had those Shine compilations. Did you sort of feel a little bit old for that kind of 
what was happening? No, we just we, we we just weren't interested in it. Um, Mal could go and buy this stuff, and we would meet at the studio that we that we built. And Mal could go, yeah, I've listened to this, and he put some, you know, maybe a sleeper uh, CD single on, and I'd go, yeah, great. It's nothing. Don't do anything for me. Um, it's just you know, my ears were elsewhere. Um, yeah, I wasn't against any of it. I just knew it wasn't for me. Yes, because because uh, the only the only the only record that came out of the UK during that very early nineties period that really captured me was the Sundays. That yeah. first Sundays album, I just thought it was beautiful. But then I saw them live, and they were they were awful, and so I found that hard to listen to for the next couple of years. I would imagine Muzzy Star were a bit the same, really. I would imagine they were. They're beautiful on record, but a bit boring probably live. But yeah, but did you? Because because did you then have a moment where you all sat down and said, to quote Jim Morrison, "This is the end." Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, we we we'd been. It's it's unfortunate. I've I've said things in the past like I I didn't like those guys. That that's not true. I, I absolutely love Mal Trice and I love Martin Jilks, um, our drummer. Sadly, no longer with us, um, and. Given the time again, I would have taken management and record company advice and taken a year off and let a couple of people go. You know, I'd have definitely let the bass player go um, and, and maybe given Martin Bell a bit more of a backseat when it came to writing what could have been a fifth album. But the, the label said, you know, like, you're not enjoying yourself, Miles. Take a year off, you know, just go and do something else for a year. We'll give you some money. So, you know, we're not saying get, go and get a job, but don't write just go and see who you are for a year without gigging and writing and demoing. And I turned it down. I just said, no, I've got to get out of here. If, if I know, if, if, I, if it's in the back of my mind that I've got to come back to this, I won't relax at all in that year. So, so I threw the towel in and, uh, yeah, we were on the construction for the Modern Idiot Tour. We weren't getting on. There was camps. There was, like, the drinking camp. Uh, poor Malk was sort of left out on his own. I purposely removed myself from everything. There was the cocaine camp and I was just like, yeah, oh God, I can't wait to get away from these people, you know? Yes. And, uh, and then MTV had been really supportive. MTV Europe had been really supportive of the fourth album and the singles from it. So I, and I lived, you know, hundred yards from there at the time, from their main building at the time in Camden. And they were, you know, I was I was in and out of there all the time and made some friends there. And then as I was thinking, one of my friends there became my boss. When I eventually took the job there, I would moan to her like, oh, I'm going to knock the wonder stuff on the head. And she said, well, if you do, do you want to try being a, a presenter on? And oh, I'd give it a go. So I gave it a shot and I was no good at it. I didn't enjoy it. Um, I just, I, I, again, it's one of those things like you give me that job now, I, I, I kind of know what to do. I just didn't know what to do with it. You know, I was very young. And, um, so yeah, I got these, I got other offers. I was doing bits of radio elsewhere and I just thought, you know what? And I wanted to write a book, which I didn't for another 20 years or something <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, and yeah, I just had enough. I should have took the year off and 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 seen how we felt after that, but I didn't. I I told the rest of the band I'm gone. Yes. And we were on tour. We were in the sound check in uh, in Gloucester, and it was just awful. I mean, 
there was no communication. I, I don't. I think I probably said hello to Malk in the mornings when we got on the tour bus, but I don't think I spoke to another member of the band for weeks on that tour. Um, and so I just sat, asked everyone if we could have a sit down in the dressing room at Gloucester Leisure Centre, and I said, "Okay, when this tour is done, I'm gone." Uh, anybody got anything to say? And uh, nobody said anything. Uh, Malk came and spoke to me later on and just said, "It's nice to hear that." I, yeah. I think I'm done with it as well. I'm like, okay, well, as long as you and I are on the same page, that's good. Uh, and I just didn't really care what the others thought at that point. Yes. Because I, I I don't know if you came across a band called Blythe Power, but they were sort of mostly Joseph Porter. the name. He was the sort of drummer, songwriter, and he made the mistake all the way through, and I think it was because of his political background of being probably an anarchist and punk, of wanting it to be a democratic process and having voting mm -hmm. rights and giving people credit for songwriting, which they never... Yeah. but he said it took him 30 years to eventually go god i am blythe power these are all my songs you know i needed to be that person who just took control but it said he said yeah but did you feel like it would have just been a lot easier a bit earlier to have said this is kind of my band isn't it really let's face it i am well no not that but i was constantly advised by managers we we had three managers at one point and all of them separately of each other. I don't know whether they'd spoken to each other and go, we've, we've got to convince Miles to take the lion's share of the writing because it will make him happier, they thought. But I'd never had my eye on money. I certainly, once it was brought to my attention that this could be a possibility, it, it, it made me worry about my relationship with the rest of the band. You know, I couldn't turn up at our studio in a Porsche when they were holding their bus pass, you know, and then... The, the, the or the, the gang of you then try and get hit some creative level that would have that would have been awful you know um so i i was taken aside three definitely three times probably more by the three separate managers that were like you should consider this you really really should and we can all see who's writing the songs the guys are brilliant and the guys are pulling their weight in other areas but each of you should be paid for what you actually do and and then the other thing is as i grew up you know, the son of a socialist. And my idea was, if everyone gets an equal cut of the spoils, then everyone will work equally as hard. Not only is that an idiotic thing to believe, because the absolute opposite is true. Because in my experience, what happened was, well, if we're all going to get an equal cut of the spoils, but Miles is going to do all the work, then I could just go to beach. <laughs> which is what they did and and that that a certain not that i wanted to go to the beach that's a metaphor really but they went and did other things you know um that i couldn't do i didn't want to do anything else and then of course i had this idiotic idea that they should all pull their weight and write songs well malcolm's never a songwriter songwriter he's a guitarist that presents embryonic ideas to people that write songs. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. You know, he's never given me a set of lyrics. He's he's told me where, you know, he's got a full arrangement ready on the guitar and he'll go like, this This is where the vocal comes in and this is the sort of the note that I'd like to hear you hit. He's done that, but he's never given me a song. Um, Martin Bell, the multi-instrumentalist, would try it, but he, they sounded like in excess demos, you know. It's, <laughs> it, it did not sound like embryonic ideas. The one stuff, bless 
bless him. You know, thanks for trying. But of course, the only person that could really write songs for the Wonder Stuff was me. So the idea that I'm asking the rest of them to do it is an idiotic idea on my part anyway. Yes. So it, it becomes it becomes very uncomfortable. And I still don't think that if I did take the lion's share of the writing published, the, you know, the publishing, I still don't think that would have made me any happier. I was I still think I would do in fact I know it wouldn't. It would it would have made me even more resentful <laughs> um, of the fact that they've got so much free time in their hands. However, as the years pass, of course, just like your man out of Blythe Power, I, they've been sticky. To, thank goodness and touch wood, I've never had to go and do anything to pay my bills. I've always managed to pay my bills as a songwriter, as a musician. But there have been some sticky times um, and... Uh, you know, I've got family responsibilities and there, there's there's been some touch and go times, but I've managed to come up with another idea that, that music pays my way each time. But, yeah, there's been some tough times. But Yeah. when you And, you know, one band that, you know, also hit sort of a, a golden moment, census things, you obviously work with Morgan Nichols basis. Yeah. What, was that kind of quite a cathartic experience having that project to work on from, from sort of, your MTV presenting moment? Oh, it was amazing because you've got Morgan Nichols and Pete Howard, uh, the other two members of Vent 414, which we started, we started it virtually in 95. We gave it a name and we just blagged parties and, um, and guest lists and after shows and stuff like that. People are like, what, who are these three guys? Because I didn't look like the guy out the one stuff anymore. You know, got a skinhead by then and uh it's like who are these three guys that are turning up everywhere we're vent 414 wow what do you sound like we don't know we haven't played a note together yet so that went on for a while and then by 96 we, we started gigging and um to be in a room with peter howard and morgan nichols having been in that what had become quite an unhealthy creative environment that the wonder stuff had ended up as was just remarkable you know it was like every time I left the room to either go to the loo or to get another round of coffees in at the rehearsal studio, when I walked back into the room, those two guys would be playing something that was like, oh, my God, you know, grab my guitar, try and get a vocal and a little bit of a guitar part over it. They just didn't stop creating. There was such a pleasure and so um, with, with such unique um, approaches to their instruments. It was it was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. And they, Pete's a very intense and serious guy, but he's also hysterically funny. Um, Morgan's just hysterically funny all the time and has no idea how talented he is. So he's always a pleasure to be with. I've never, ever seen him even slightly moody or pissed off. So I'd got all that covered and um yeah it was a, it was an amazing 18 months 20 months that we spent together uh i loved it and then morgan just wanted to go and do something else and both pete and i agreed that morgan as a musician was irreplaceable but also in that little gang of young men as a personality he was he was irreplaceable as well so it just sort of it, it didn't continue we tried tried to we did some demos to you know, uh, me playing bass in the studio and 
but it and we bought mount in on some stuff but uh it it just it, it's a completely lost whatever it was supposed to be yes but then then sort of as we go into the noughties you you sort of reform the band again but how did that sort of feel and come about because it's it's with variants i always remember there was a sort of a documentary you probably saw it one of those bbc4 on a friday night moments where they had you know bands who reformed and they had sort of the police with Stuart Copeland talking about mm-hmm. them sort of touring and everybody loving it, mainly because there was a lot of money, but apart from him and Sting, who were having a miserable time. So they had to get band therapy and, and get through the rest of the tour and sort of learn, you know, all the things they did to each other, which really were quite upsetting. Had, did you sort of have kind of a mixed experience reforming the band? Um, yeah, it was kind of joyful for a week or two. Um, it was great to, so I'd had what five or six years off from playing those songs, um, with a band, Malk and I had toured America quite extensively as an acoustic duo for 98. Now I did it with a few other friends in 99 and 2000. Um, yeah, it, it was great to be playing with Martin Jilks again, particularly, um, we didn't bring back the second bass player. We, we we had a friend of ours called Stuart Quinnell come in who was just a breath of fresh air, great player, beautiful man to be in a room with, just, you know, kept you laughing, kept the vibes going, putting the vibe out. That was, you know, you'd see Stuart. hadn't seen Stuart for a week or two and you'd go into rehearsals. What have you been doing, Stu? Just putting the vibe out, baby. <laughs> you know, that, that was his, his whole thing. He was just gorgeous to be around. Great player. Him and Martin Jilks really, really got on. Um, so it was nice. It was nice for that first run of shows that we did in the, I think it was December 2000. Um, did five nights at the Forum in, in London. A couple of nights at JB's to warm up um, up in the Midlands. And that was great. And then we started taking on just festival offers. I got my own management by then, but Martin was also a manager. Martin Jilks was also a manager in his own right. He, him and his brother were, it was really his brother's company, but um, Martin really got, got into the idea of being a manager. They got Reef and a couple of other bands. Actually, they had a band called Understand, which was where we found Stuart Cornell, the bass player. Um and then Martin Jilks and I just started to butt heads over things. And because he agreed that my manager was also going to be a part of it. But even though he made that verbal agreement, he had no intention of my manager um, being at all involved. And so was quite cruel to my manager, the manager that I still have. I've been with my manager now for 23 years and he, um, him and his business partner are the sweetest, kindest, most honest, most encouraging, you know, wonderful, wonderful people you could ever wish to meet in your life. Still after 23 years, there's not a single bit of paper that exists between us by way of a contract. It's, you know, we, we're, dear, dear friends, and we trust each other to do what we've agreed to do for each other. And it just seemed that Martin Jilks, as a manager, was in a, was in a different world to me. Um, I wanted everything to be on a handshake and, and be about friendship and trust. Uh, and Martin wanted it to be about money 
and who could get the most money. That was the world he was in. You know, he was managing bands that were signed to major labels. You know, I was out of a record deal. I'm quite happy about that. And Martin was unnecessarily cruel, I think, in his behaviour towards my managers. And then my manager just said, you know what, Milo, if you're happy with this, I don't need to be a part of it. There is zero enjoyment in this. I don't really like dealing with Martin. I don't really like his tricks. So I, I'm happy to walk away as long as you're happy to allow me to walk away. If you don't need me and you're going to, and I'm like, okay, I'm very sad, but all right. And I'll, I'll just have to deal with Jilks. And Jilks just became um, a very different Martin to the one that I'd come up with. Um, I ended up really not liking him, which wasn't the case. You know, when the Wonders have broke up in the in the mid nineties, Martin. You know, he, he, he. I don't think I'm breaking any confidences here. You know, he, he was alcoholic, uh, and by the time he was doing the management thing in the early two thousands, he, he'd beaten that. You know, or he was recovering, sober. He was doing brilliantly at it, uh, but it made him quite a, an unpleasant bloke to deal with. Um, so me and him fell out badly, and uh, and. I think we, we, we worked on the one stuff for about two years and everything that he would bring to the table as a manager was so full of cynicism and unpleasantness, uh, just about getting as much money out of this promoter as possible. And I'd go, Martin, that venue's too big. We cannot fill that venue. And the promoter's going to lose a lot of money. We'll get our guarantee. And he's like, well, that's their fault. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to go onto a stage that in a room that holds 5,000 people and we've got 2,000 people in here. That's just, you know, the audience is going to hate that vibe. Yeah. I'm going to hate that vibe. And I don't know, what's the point of going around pissing promoters off that you will never work with again? You know, what does, that's not how the wonder stuff has, has existed to this point. And I remember him saying to me one day, he said, well, because my idea now with the wonder stuff is to just, drive it as fast as we can into a wall and make as much money as we can. Uh, that was his approach to the one stuff in the early 2000s. And I just said, I can't, I can't be a part of that. I probably didn't say it that politely. Um, and we fell out really badly to the, to the point where I thought, okay, I'll leave this for a month. There was nothing we needed to do. There was no reason we needed to see each other. So I left it for a month and, um, and then I was trying to call him and he wouldn't take my calls. Uh, and then that went on for about a month. And then he eventually phoned my manager and just said, uh, tell, tell Miles Hunt, not even Miles, tell Miles Hunt to get all of his equipment out of the lockup where we kept all of our stuff by the end of April. And uh, I never want to work with Miles Hunt ever again, was his quote, which a few months later he retracted that because he wanted money um, from somewhere that doesn't need going into. And, um, and that was how me and him left it. And I think two, two and a half years later, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And um, shamefully, I had no emotion uh, about it at all. You know, I was just like, huh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and um, it took me, you know, he wanted to go to court. He wanted to take me to court. He, when when Malk and I carried on the wonder stuff from about 2003, 2000, no, about 2004, with a new drummer and a new bass player, he was trying to stop us doing that. He was trying to stop us releasing new records under the name of the wonder stuff. He hijacked the 
the website and put some pathetic message on there. Um, and then, then my manager just said, look, you know, here's X thousands of pounds. I will give you this to go away. Just leave Miles alone. You don't like Miles. You don't want to work with him. Um, you can't take the wonder stuff from Miles. So it's his X amount of money. And uh, Martin turned that down and said he wanted to go um, go go the, the route of the courts, which was imbecilic because um, I have a very, very powerful lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and so when his lawyer was told to get in contact with my lawyer, his lawyer didn't even contact my lawyer. He just said, Martin, there's no way we can win this if if that's Miles's lawyer. And it was, it was tragic. It was a tragic way for what had been a good friendship to end. Just two or three really unpleasant years where I was, I just wanted to be in my band. You know, I, I didn't want to make a shit pile of money out of it. I just wanted to play the songs I'd written, write some new ones with my pal Mark and carry on. And Martin took this bizarre stance in it all. Yeah. Do you, I always remember when, um, listening to Robert Plant talking about the end of Led Zeppelin and then John Bonham died. And he said that was the end of innocence. Did you feel that that hmm. particular period was a little bit like, because you hadn't had that kind of stuff? No, we had. But, uh, Rob Jones died um, in 93. Yeah, but not, not the death, died. but that kind of legality thing, which is quite, it's a whole... Oh, no, he'd done, he'd done that as well. What Rob did? Yeah, Rob... Rob Jones tried to go that route with us as well, yeah. So that's an interesting... I didn't know that as a Robert Plant um, quote, but, um, yeah, when when Rob Jones left the Wonderstuff uh, and then uh, ceased, for a little while, it, we were allowed to have contact with him, uh, and then we got a letter from a lawyer to tell us that we were no longer allowed to have direct contact with him. Uh, so it was just lawyers speaking to each other. And then, um, then he managed to kill himself as well. <laughs> uh, so that's a very interesting phrase. Um, and so, yeah, that, that period after Rob left and then only sadly lived another three years, that, that three years was, that was the, uh, yeah, that was the end of our innocence. Yes. Because did you say that he started the band with money that he'd won on the, Football pools. Football pools, which is a very 70s thing. Yeah, well, well, Malcolm, Malcolm Martin Jilk started the band. They had a different bass player. Then they brought me in to try out to audition as a singer, rhythm guitarist. The original bass player didn't like what I was doing, so he quit. And then Bob Jones turned up, who was, who was an old friend of all of ours, and he'd been living in London, but he came back to the Midlands and he joined the band. <laughs> and then miraculously had this lovely win on the football pools and, and said, you know, I'll put X amount of this money into going into the studio and pressing up a record. Easy queasy. That's an amazing story, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, very generous of him. <laughs> Not quite as amazing as um, both people dying. That's kind of a bit spooky, isn't it? On paper. Yeah, I mean, and they they died incredibly rock and roll deaths. You know, you don't you don't really think of the Wonder Stuff being uh, being a particularly rock and roll band, but you know, you got a, a drugs overdose and a motorcycle accident yeah. um, took out the rhythm section, and um, and yeah, you know, I don't. It's uh, so far so good. 
But, uh, you know, there's other ex-members that I don't have anything to do with. And thankfully, they're still alive because I was worried at one point that, like, <laughs> if you fell out with Miles Hunt. <laughs> there was a curse. You're gonna, yeah, you're going to make some awful sticky end, you know. Uh, but that that's proven so far such would not to be true. Because yeah. that could look really suspicious, couldn't it? It could, yeah. It could. <laughs> So look, now you you know you're in a better place, aren't you? Can I just hold, hold you a second? Do you, have you got a little bit more you want to do? Yeah, just a little bit about your latest kind of work and collaboration. And okay, yeah, yeah. I just I just need to have a quick piece, so I just hit pause. Okay, I will. You keep an eye out, kid. We'll be right back. You can come in if you like, mate. Are you talking to the cat? That's my dog. Oh, the dog. Yeah, so yeah. I just kind of, because obviously not many people really, well, there are, I suppose, a few, but not many people have managed to sort of keep a whole life in music, have they? Most people have sort of dropped out after a while and thought, I'm going to get another job or I'm going to get off the stage and, and do something else. But you actually have stuck with it and continued, not re completely reinvented yourself, but you have collaborated with a lot of other people and, you know, you're sort of, yeah, just just still releasing and making music yeah well i mean i've been very very lucky in so much as so many people from that original audience have, have stuck with me uh i mean believe me i i i am very grateful for that and i, and I know how fortunate i am i hope it's got something to do with the fact that i'm still <laughs> I'm still able to write a decent tune here and there, you know. Um, but I am fortunate in that. I I never. It, it's a funny thing. I I know people that are far more talented than me. That it it dropped away from them, whatever it is, you know, from from those early days of being graced with a record deal and international touring. And I know people that are far more talented than me that weren't lucky enough to keep that going. Um, and I sometimes think, did that person just want it more than me? Do they? Do they just? Do they just seem a bit too needy? Um, and whereas I look at my my life in music as as a curse, it, it's it's actually just something I can't escape. <laughs> <laughs> and um, believe me, there's been times I've thought I was thinking about it earlier this year. I was going to try and get my class one HGV license and do a bit of driving for a while, but with the idea that I would come back to, to music. But yeah, I've been very fortunate that I've, I've got a, a lot of audience members that have stuck with me for a lot of years. And on the whole, I enjoy it. I, I don't enjoy it as much as I enjoy it, if that makes any sense. Yes. Like, like I have really bad days sitting in in the house and i'm working on new material I, I can have like two weeks of it's just flowing out of me and i'm sending it backwards and forwards to the various musicians that i'm lucky enough to still be able to work with and it's happening and then i'll hit like a month where everything that i try is rubbish and i just i cannot lift myself out of it. I'm like why am i still doing this surely i've done enough already uh and then the same can also happen when, when i'm out on the road you know i can have amazing experiences at either touring gigs or festival gigs and then i can have the complete opposite and just think all right I've got, it's time i've got to get out 
So I, I'm not one of those people that's desperately hanging on to it, um, which is w what I think I some of the some of my contemporaries where they failed was they just seemed a bit a bit too desperate, and I think the audience could smell it. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? There was a, yes, because I know that um, yeah, there's a few people I won't say, but you know they brought. No. They they brought back you know they've come back and it hasn't felt quite genuine. Whereas, but you haven't left the stage, and I think that makes a huge difference, isn't it? I mean that's the, that's the difference with a lot of people. Whereas, you know the intention for what you're doing is quite genuine and it's coming from a place of, yeah, you know. There it's only been one gig since since I started gigging, which I think I was. Uh, I was thirteen when I did my first ever gig in front of an audience when I was a drummer only 1997 was was the only year in my life that I haven't done a gig so 83 no 81 to 97 I gigged every year 97 I don't know why I didn't do a single gig uh, and 2020 will also be that year as well but for not for reasons that I've chosen yes I know this is strange. So look, just coming right up to because you've done a do you did a kind of a lot of dates and you came to the John Peel Centre at the Stone Market in Stone Market, didn't you? Yeah, Erica as a duo. Yeah, which did that do working on those kind of projects and collaborations? Does that sort of revive the fire in your soul, so to speak? You know, do you sort of feel like oh, this is actually quite a nice little variation? Uh, well, I I have a, a a very poor attention span. So whatever I'm doing at any given point in time, I know I'm going to get bored of it quite quickly. So whether that's touring with the band or spending time in the studio with the band or touring as I did with Erica or touring on my own. So if this is not by design, this is entirely by accident, but it's actually worked out really well for me. The next thing that I do isn't going to be the thing that I'm currently doing. And it seems to have been that way now for about 20 years. So if I'm in a rehearsal studio with the Wonder Stuff in 2000 to do those gigs, that's not going to carry me through 2001. 2001, I went off to America, formed another band, recorded an album there with those guys. Then I toured that to 2002. Then there were some Wonder Stuff festival dates. Then I did an acoustic tour, and it, it's the next thing I do, and it's pretty much the same with making records as well, as well as my live activities. If I'm currently working on a Wonderstuff album, the next album I make won't be a Wonderstuff album. So two Wonderstuff albums ago, which is 30 Goes Around the Sun, which I'm really proud of. The next album that I did was an acoustic duo album with Erica. The next album was the Wonderstuff. Then I did uh, another acoustic album, but on my own. Now I'm working on Event 414 record. I'm also working on a record with Luke Johnson, which we don't know what we're going to do with those songs, but we're enjoying doing it. So it's, I'm, as I say, it's not really by design. It's just the next thing I do is not the same thing that I'm doing right now. And, yes. and I'm quite, look, quite lucky, given my personality uh, default uh, or fault, which is I've got a piss poor attention span. But did you, did it take a while when you sort of 
could call your did you did you ever sort of have a point where you thought actually I am an artist here I'm not just a sort of a, a young chap playing music I am sort of I can step into that next kind of kind of level really like David like David Bowie you know all the stuff he did in the 60s was pretty hit and miss mostly miss wasn't it let's face it then he sort of does his amazing 70s work he does some pretty dreadful stuff in the 80s really and then he sort of comes through it but you kind of realize that there's kind of that body of work and you've also stuck with it and you've reinvented yourself you played with lots of different musicians and had lots of different producers I just wondered if there was a moment where you thought actually this is this is who I am I'm not just it's not just a thing that I'm going to stop in a bit I'm going to keep doing it until the end I just wondered yeah yeah I mean that that is how I, I, I don't really use the so I wouldn't self-apply the word artist, but um, whatever this is that I do, this is who I am. I mean, it's funny, you know, 10 years ago, I used to say, you know, arguably, I'm more than halfway through my life. So I've kind of defined what it is that I do, what it, what it, what it was that I spent my time on the planet doing. Well, now, I, not even arguably, I am way more than halfway through my life. So I accept that what it is that I've done and what it is that I think about each day. Um, that's my dog in the background. Um, then that is who I am. Um, and yeah, it, it's not something I've self-applied. It's just what's happened. Hold on. Wait! Shut up! His master's voice. Yes. <laughs> It's always going to stop him. Yes, but I, you know, because you do, obviously you're de 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 developing a lot more confidence in sort of taking the baton and thinking, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's kind of that's a sort of that's wisdom, isn't it? It's experience. You know, I'm I'm certainly happy that I escaped the idea of thinking that I need a major support system, like a major record deal, you know, which I haven't had since 1996, 97, I think Polydor dropped me. And then I had a record deal for a year and a half with Eagle Rock, um, which was, both of them were thoroughly pleasant experiences, but I'm glad that, so for over 20, for 20 years now, I haven't had a record deal. I've, my manager runs a label that puts out anything that I ask him to put out that I've done, but you know, there's not big advances. There's not a press department. There's not a promotions department. And I'm, I, I, again, I know some artists, contemporaries, some a little bit older than me that feel when that kind of support system goes away, that they're fucked, you know, that, that their confidence goes with it. And, I'm really glad that that sort of support system, by the time we got to the early 2000s, that the idea of, you know, relying on advances, you know, record company or publishing advances, which I haven't had for two decades now, I'm really glad that I shook that off. Um, and that I, it's it's going back to my socialist upbringing, really. It's like, well, if you don't work, then you don't eat. You know, it's, you don't get to pay the bills. So each project that I settle into, I I don't get money for it in the year that I'm working on it. I, you know, thank, thank goodness so far, again, touch wood. In a year's time, what I'm working on now will pay the bills 
for yes. for that period. It's like the money I'm living on now is a record that I made eighteen months ago. So, well, I remember. Uh, I think Lenny from Motorhead. There was just one plan. That was to play music, wasn't it? From his Rock and Dicker days to Hawkwind to Motorhead, he was just gonna. It was gonna be make an album or do something, do a tour, have a bit of a break, you know. Yeah. Go back and do it again, and I suppose he just didn't sort of think. He didn't know anything else, and I suppose that's where you realise that somebody's, you know, they're not going to put in a, an application to the arts funding, arts council. No. They're going to actually get off their ass, make the album, do the yeah. tour. And, yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's a job of work. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm proud of it, you know, and it's that, that idea of uh, with, 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 with working brings a certain certain self-confidence, certain dignity, I don't know, that you're i'm all right like like mental health wise i'm all right with what i do and how i do it and how it works out you know i'm also very fortunate yes so look the new album came out better being lucky which i was listening to today it sounds bright and sharp your product you know the production on it is stunning isn't it i mean the songs are sharp they got they've got hooks they got catch to it, you know, it's you must you must still sort of feel very proud, but be able to sort of still create something so kind of um, positive and and sort of relevant. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's it's a good what what we've got with the one stuff these days is a very good team. Um, the producer is absolutely essential to it. Um, a guy called Simon Effamy, and he recorded our very very first demo in 1986 in a little rehearsal studio, straight to cassette. Um, and he went on from owning a little rehearsal studio and being a job in sound engineer to becoming a hard rock uh, producer. He he works with uh, he's, he's our live sound engineer uh, these days. Has been for a number of years. Again, he was originally, but then his record production uh, life took him elsewhere, and then he came back to us in sometime in the last eight or nine years. He's uh, he's another vibe merchant, you know. Never seen the guy angry or moody. He's just uh, an absolute. He's a lifelong friend now. He's a place to be with. But he he knows when you go into the studio. Again, you're there to let me shut the dog up again. Beds, shut up. Um, he, you know, he, you're not in there to muck about. You you you're there with purpose. We do muck about. And we have plenty of laughs. Um, but we're experienced enough now. He is far more technically experienced than I. Uh, his love of, even though he, you know, he's Napalm Death sound engineer, produced records for them. He, you know, the hard rock is, you know, he's has been his life really. But he loves pop and soul. He's got young kids. He loves to listen to everything that the, the young girls are listening to his children and uh, you know, he's just, he's an amazing person to be around. And, and every time, you know, each instrument goes down, each, each change in the arrangement when an idea comes in, the finished product or the end game is always in Simon's head. I'm so lucky to work with him. Then of course on this album, I'm better being lucky. I was also lucky enough to work with Mark Gemini Thwaite, who's a guitarist I've known for, 30 years over uh, from Birmingham, but he's had an amazing career um, playing with a host of brilliant musicians. Mm. He's with Tricky, he was in the Mission, done a lot of work with Peter Murphy from Bauhaus in recent years. 
Ginger Wildheart. I mean, uh, the guy's out of Killing Joke. He's does stuff with Loltov uh, from The Cure. Incredible the stuff that Mark uh, that Mark Gemini Thwaite does. And so to have him as as a co writer on just just over half, well, pretty much the whole album, really. I mean, he gave me, I think, five songs, instrumentals that he'd come up with, but with an understanding that it's for the Wonder Stuff, you know. So he's seen the Wonder Stuff from a distance for 30 years. And then when him and I decided to co-write together, I'm like, this is a Wonder Stuff album. And so him bringing his idea of the Wonder Stuff as, a, as an outsider was absolutely brilliant to, to work with. So... And working on a Wonder Stuff album, those things, I think you said bright, um, clear, sharp, you know, words like that. That's what a Wonder Stuff record has to be. Vent 414 isn't that. Vent 414 is a different thing. Um, and the stuff I'm doing at the moment with Luke Johnson is, again, a different thing. The records I've made with Erica Knuckles, again, is a different thing. When we go in to make a Wonder Stuff album, and I do hope there will be another, it won't be next year, perhaps the year after, um, 2022, those are, you know, we go in with a very purposeful way. This is a Wonder Stuff record. We're not here to indulge me as a 54-year-old you know, and my love of magazine. That That's not what the Wonder Stuff's about. It's, it's about, it can be, you know, lyrically it can be me as a 54-year-old and is, um, you know, I've always tried to write honestly, since Eight Legged Groove Machine. Anyway, um, I've always write. I've always tried to write about who I am. Um, but yeah, I, we we don't need a, a nine minute, you know, dub track on a Wonder Stuff album. But that's <laughs> that's something that Vent Four and Four can do. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, it's interesting you mentioned Pete Murphy because actually I really like a lot of his solo work. And there was oh, one, me too. Yeah, there's one album that he does seem to sort of bring in that sort of whether it's an accordion or a violin. But I just remember it was absolutely stunning. So I was thinking, oh my god, yes. Yeah, he's done some. There's a song of his. Um, I think it's I, I fall, I fall on your knife. I think that's what it's called. There's Probably. one. He does one called Cuts You Up, and that is one of those songs which are just quite mesmerising. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. He's, but he's, I saw Gemini Thwaite play with him a couple of years ago now. So it's a, it's a Peter Murphy uh, gig. It's not a Bauhaus gig, but he's got David J on bass. It wasn't Haskins on drums, but the drummer was fabulous. But it, it was a Bauhaus set. Uh, it wasn't Danny Ash on guitar. It was Gemini Thwaite. And... Having not listened to those early Bauhaus records since they came out, really, since I was a kid, I mean, I absolutely adored them. And I saw them do this set in Manchester two years ago, maybe a little over. It was wonderful to to hear those tunes again, executed brilliantly by all the musicians, and, and Peter Murphy himself was stunning on stage. And I'd sort of got used to his solo stuff, so to see him go back to being Peter Murphy from Bauhaus rather than Peter Murphy from that, 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 that was great. That was an eye. It was an eye opener. I was, um, not that it's my place to feel proud of Peter Murphy, but I felt proud of him that night. I was like, mate, you nailed it. He did nail it. No, it's good. But look, just last question. Thanks for this. What would you, if you could have said something to your 18 year old self, I just wondered what that, that bit of advice might be or just word of wisdom. Stay away from women. <laughs> Get a dog. Yeah. 
just 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 have a dog live with a dog you know and uh yes stop thinking that you as a human being are capable of having a relationship and living with another person in the the traditional sense of either being married or being uh you know being being a couple just just milo don't do it don't do it <laughs> although I, I would have had you know at least 70 percent of my arsenal of lyrical subjects taken away from me if if i hadn't uh done that time and time again yes i remember there was a quote by jerry lee lewis saying i don't know 90 percent of the people end up with the wrong person but that's what makes the turntable spin or something there you go that is it i mean there's there's nothing quite like a broken heart to 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 knock out a good lyric or uh or a pissed off person you know uh in that regard seemingly you know you, you when everything's hunky-dory and you sit down with a pen or paper or you sit at a keyboard at a computer you can sit there scratching your head for hours and like, what am I going to write about? What, what do I give a shit about? You know, but uh, but if you're if you're on a downer on, on in your relationship status, oh baby, it just floods onto the page, and and it floods onto the page in such a way that I try not to make it obvious that it's always about you know a relationship with a significant other. I try and I try and steer it somewhere else i think the great love songs and the great breakup songs have all been written yes um so i I try to take it somewhere else i try to make it more about isolation and yeah that but it, it's i mean it's definitely uh my experiences with trying to have life partners or whatever you want to call them giving me a lot of lyrics but um yeah i, I, I don't intend to do it again <laughs> Because actually, I didn't know, but I thought you were still, you're not with Erica still. No, we were together for like 11 or 12 years. We split up uh, two and a half years ago, I think. Yeah, about two and a half years ago. I mean, we're still friends because we play together in the Wonder Stuff and we're, we're grown ups. It's not like, uh, you know, if we were in our, our late teens or, well, if we were in our late 20s and we'd done 12 years together, then, then you could see the obvious difficulties <clears throat> um, arising. But, you know, I'm 54 this month. Uh, Erica's a lot younger than that, but you know she's uh, also uh, a lot wiser than me. Um, so uh, yeah, we're grown ups. We've you know we've we've toured together two or three times. We've definitely made a record together as well. Uh, Why we've not been partners, and uh, yeah, so so that's fine. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Well, I do. I mean, I know. Just lastly, I know Lemmy always said don't have a relationship if you're in music because it just never works would you is that the same experience as, as you or was it um it, i i don't think it was no well okay i i, I met lemmy a couple of times I, I can't say that i knew the man but um here's my thinking it, it, if you're going to do what i've done with my life let's just call it a job you know if you're going to do what i've done you have to be incredibly selfish yeah i know i am incredibly selfish and uh what i've what i've done with my life is entirely to feed my own ego and uh needs so 
if I was to have a partner that has never had any, okay, I had one relationship where where my girlfriend had no knowledge or experience of the music industry, and that was the toughest one. Um, but you know, I was married to a music journalist, so she she got a good angle on it all. And then, of course, spent 12 years with Erica, who essentially was as selfish as me because she wanted to do exactly the same thing. And I used to say to myself during that relationship, wow, I finally got it right. Um, you know, forget what Fleetwood Mac and all those other bands, you know, where, where there's been partnerships, uh, romantic par partnerships in the band where it doesn't work. It's working. You know, why didn't I just, I couldn't have found Erica because she was considerably younger than me, but, you know, why don't you work with your significant other on the same thing, you know, be musicians together. However, that ran its course. So I have zero advice for anyone, but I, I, I know how difficult I am. And it's driven by the selfishness of what I do as a creative person. Yes. Well, I guess, you know, you have to follow your news, as Neil Young once said. Or when it's, like I said earlier, it's more, it's it's a curse, it's it, or an illness sometimes. Either. Yes, but well, it's funny you mentioned <laughs> curse because I did an interview with Boo, who were Dean. Um, yeah, I know Boo, and and he kept saying about the curse, the curse of the band. Who's got the next? Who's got it next? The curse. He referred to the. Well, it's that wonderful line, isn't it, from uh, from the Godfather? But Silvio from the Sopranos delivers it so much better, you know when. Or so much with a lot of comedy where he says, uh, you know, I tried to get out, but they pulled me back in again. <laughs> Talking about the mob. And I also love, there's another line in The Sopranos that really amuses me. The con the connection. Not that I know anyone that's been in the mob, uh, but when, when I, you see the movie and the TV version of the mob, it's a lot like being in a band. It's a gang. There is a, a you know a kinship between the people that are all working together. There is betrayal, and there's a lovely line. I think it's Paulie Walnuts in The Sopranos where he says, "There are two things in a recession that that historically have never been affected by a recession: the entertainment industry and our thing." And I, that really amuses me that there is actually, a, again, you know, like in this awful time where so many people are losing their jobs and, you know, their ability to pay their bills with, with lockdown and COVID-19, it has put me into a situation where I, 2020 was not going to be a year for me where I was going to be very creative. I, I, you know, there was some gigs to do in September this year with the, with the Wonder Stuff. But I was definitely not intending to write or to spend any time sitting with guitars or a computer. And um, I just I just wanted to empty my brain and then come back to writing in 2021. Well, uh, that's not been possible. And I have done more work this year in terms of writing work, such as it is, um, you know, in terms of writing. In the, it was 10 or 12 songs that I've written since the start of lockdown with co-written with my friends. And we're just going to keep that going for the rest of the year. 
So by the time we get to the end of the year, there'll be 20 or 30 tunes to then look at 2021. Okay, who, who, which project is this for? Is this Wonderstuff? Is this Ventful 14? Is this whatever Luke Johnson and I are doing? Um, and it's this little bit, of, as, much, as, as close to graft as I get, will be paying my bills in another 18 months time you know um and 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 it's so uh, that that poorly walnuts thing you know it's a recession or nobody saw a pandemic coming or people a lot cleverer than me perhaps did but in terms of work and my ability to earn it hasn't affected me in a in a strange way and that um, is almost the end of the conversation. We have a bit of chat at the end, as you do in the world of showbiz. Anyway, I think that's enough. Well done, if you still got to the end. You need a medal. Anyway, that was a massive thank you to Miles Hunt for that conversation. Um, fascinating. We learned so much. But uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for various reasons, make it nice, though. Life's too short. Uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do at C86show. And also, all these shows have been archived. Yeah, I hear you say. Um, so, yeah, go to Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. Do C86show. It's all there. Enjoy it. Any indie bands from that golden decade, I'll probably got them. There you go. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>